Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as a professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to the podcast, Understanding Christianity. You can do me a great favor. If you've benefited from this podcast in any way, would you do me a favor and go to iTunes and give us a rating? Um, it helps us to get higher in um, exposure on iTunes. If, if you benefited from this and you like this podcast, just go give a rating, and, and it, I would really greatly appreciate that. And also pass this podcast along to people that you know. Uh, maybe you have friends or people in your church or others that you want to listen to this. Um, feel free to, to direct them to this, and I would love to hear from my listeners. And so I have no idea who out there is listening to this podcast all around the country. And so maybe email me and tell me some feedback. I'd love to get your feedback. Uh, You can go to seancole.net. That's S-E-A-N-C-O-L-E dot net. Uh, That is my website. You can find my contact information there as far as Twitter and Facebook and email. Um, I'd love for you to interact with me and and give me some feedback on uh, what you like or dislike on this podcast, maybe some future podcast topics that you'd like for me to address or some theological issues that you'd like for me to tackle. And maybe on this podcast, I can answer some of your questions on air and we can deal with those on a future podcast. And so um, I just like to interact with you as my listeners to find out uh, where you are and what what you're doing in life and how I can be of better service to you and and just how you've um, benefited from listening to this podcast and maybe what God is doing in your life. And so that would be a great way for me to connect with you as a listener if you would do me that favor of of contacting me and, and helping me to interact with you in a better way. You know, in the discussion related to soteriology or salvation, there's a lot of different views across the spectrum. And on this podcast, we've dealt with many of those views. Arminianism, traditional Southern Baptist views. Obviously, we come from a Calvinistic viewpoint. But what I want to do on today's podcast is to address two extremes that may happen when you go off the rails in embracing an unbiblical view of the the doctrine of salvation. So what I want to do is I want to show you the extreme view that Arminianism leads to, and that is open theism or process theology. Arminianism, if it's taken to an extreme, and not all Arminians take it to an extreme, but if it's taken to an extreme, you get a belief called open theism. And so we're going to talk about what is open theism, what are the tenets of open theism, who is espousing open theism. On the other side, on the Calvinistic side, there's an extreme that can be taken to what is called hyper-Calvinism. And oftentimes, five-point Calvinists like myself may be accused of being hyper-Calvinist, and I think that's an unfair um, accusation, especially historically and theologically. And so, on this podcast, we are going to discuss what is open theism and what is hyper-Calvinism. So, let's start with talking about open theism. Open theism. Arminianism obviously is a view that has been around for a long time. Um, It is considered within the bounds of orthodox theology. Obviously, as a Calvinist, I would say that it comes up short in understanding the full doctrine of how God saves sinners, but I would not call an Arminian brother or sister a heretic, or I would not call them a false teacher. I would say that they have a a sub-biblical or not a fully robust biblical view of how God saves sinners. But taken to an extreme, the extreme view of Arminianism leads to open theism. And I do believe that open theism is a heresy. Now, there are some Arminians and some traditional Southern Baptists who would disagree with that. They would say that open theism is within the bounds of orthodoxy. Uh, But I would have to disagree with them and say that, no, open theism is a heresy. As a matter of fact, our own Southern Baptist Convention in our Articles of Faith talks about and addresses open theism. And so the Baptist faith and message in and of itself, because this was an issue that arose during the late 80s and the early 90s when when this kind of gained some steam, uh, the Baptist faith and message 2000 actually addresses this issue. And I think it was probably Dr. Moeller at Southern who was on the committee to help draft the 2000 Baptist faith and message who helped lead the charge in addressing that. So let me just read to you what the Baptist faith and message 
message says about this issue. In Article 2 under God, it says there's one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being, the creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. God in his, is infinite in holiness in all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. Now that's a new statement that was added from the 1963 Baptist faith and message to the 2000 Baptist faith and message because it had to address the growing um, popularity within scholarly uh, circles of open theism. And notice what it says. It says his perfect knowledge. So number one, God has perfect knowledge and that extends to all things both things in the past, things that are happening right now, and things in the future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. So God knows, obviously, what his creatures are going to choose and what they're going to decide in the future. So what is open theism? Well, let's begin by talking about um, the the well-educated evangelicals who have affirmed or articulated this. And it's interesting because some of these men would consider themselves the, those that believe in inerrancy. They are not just popular speakers who happen to have a blog here and there. No, these are well-respected scholarly men who back in the 80s and in the 90s wrote books and wrote scholarly journals and espoused this. So this is not just some newfangled belief system that some guy on a blog or some movement happened to to espouse. This goes deeply into scholarship. And so uh, the three main, I call them the great triumvirate, (laughs) are are the great three of open theism that really are are the fathers of this movement are Clark Pinnock, Greg Boyd, and John Sanders. Now, Clark Pinnock is an interesting man because he actually was a Southern Baptist professor of theology at New Orleans Seminary uh, back in the 70s. And and actually now, I would say Clark Pinnock, and I'm not sure if he's even alive anymore, but I would say that he has gone beyond just being an Arminian to actually, I think he affirms universalism now, that all people are going to go to heaven. So he's taken it even to a a further extreme. Greg Boyd, formerly taught at Bethel College in Minnesota. Um, He's associated with the Baptist General Conference. Um, He's now a pastor in Minnesota. Uh, John Sanders teaches at Huntington College in Huntington, Indiana, a brethren school. And so when we think about classical theism, what the Baptist faith and message articulates, what Christians have affirmed over the centuries, affirms that God is unchanging in his being, in his character, in his purposes, and in his promises. This is called the immutability of God, that God does not change. God does not change in his being. He doesn't go from being more holy to less being or to more of God to less of God in his being. He doesn't change in his character. God doesn't go from being more holy to less holy or more loving to less loving. Um, He doesn't change in his purposes or his promises. God's promises are fixed. They are eternal according to his great counsel. And so what the open theists do is they like to really deal with this whole issue of the debate between Calvinists and Arminians about God's foreknowledge. And so they tend to to, to take it to an extreme related to the foreknowledge of God. Let me just give you a quote from from James Arminius. He's the quote-unquote founder, uh, I guess, of Arminianism. Actually, it was his followers who were called the Remonstrants who actually came up with the five points of Arminianism that in the Dutch church in the 15 and 1600s, and then the the Synod of Dort had to meet to articulate the five points of what we call Calvinism. Um, But the writings of Arminius are are very um, instrumental in the whole idea of what they believe about God's foreknowledge. And here's what he says. He says this, God, this is, this is Arminius, God knows all things from eternity 
He knows all things immeasurably. He knows all things immutable. His knowledge not being varied. And that's an orthodox view of God's knowledge. So even Jacob Arminius himself was not an open theist. He, he would not take it that far to say that God does not know the future decisions of his free creatures. Thomas Oden is a popular our leading Arminian theologian from the, the Wesleyan or, or Methodist tradition. And he strongly disagrees with the openness position. Uh, back in, this is a long, little while back in 1998, in a Christianity Today article, Odin wrote this, the fantasy, quote, the fantasy that God is ignorant of the future is a heresy that must be rejected on scriptural grounds. Thomas Odin is probably one of the, the leading Arminian scholars of our day, and he has come out and called open theism a heresy. So we need to be very careful to say that not all Arminians believe in open theism. It's, it's an extreme view of Arminianism that has been taken to, to, an, to, to its extreme logical conclusion. So with that as a background, let me give you the five key elements of open theism. What, what do they actually believe? What is open theism? Well, number one, open theists affirm what they call a qualified divine omniscience. A qualified divine. And, and again, omniscience means all-knowing. That, that God is all-knowing in a qualified sense. And here's what their argument is. The future does not exist to know yet. So God cannot, since the future hasn't happened yet, God cannot know the future free choices of his creatures. God only possesses present knowledge of things that are going on right now, and that's a perfect knowledge of the present, and he has perfect knowledge of things that have happened in the past. But they would say that God's omniscience is limited only to things of the past and things of the present. God does not know the future free choices of his creatures because the future has not happened yet. So they would give what's called a qualified omniscience. And qualified meaning God only knows the past, God only knows the present, but God does not exhaustively know the future because the future hasn't happened yet. And so there could be millions of different um, choices. Let's, let's just say for one person, let's say, for example, um, I decide to become an architect or I decide to become a cartoonist for Disney, or I decide to be an astronaut, or I decide to marry this person, or I decide to go down this path. As a human being with freedom in front of me, I've got all these different choices that I can make that, that could go all these different ways depending on what I choose. And since those choices are before me and they're infinite and I haven't made them yet, the open theist is saying God does not know what those choices are yet. He only knows the choices I've made in the past and the choices that I'm making right now, but he does not know the future choices I'm going to make. So that's key number one. Number two tenant or key belief system of open theism is they really reject the whole idea of God as king. They don't like the kingly metaphors that are used of God in the scriptures. They are more in favor of God being an at-risk parent, an at-risk parent. Uh, they basically would say the whole idea of God as a sovereign king really depicts God as this uh, tyrant. He's insecure. He's weak. And so he has to exercise his sovereignty over his creation. And that this whole idea of God being king is really repulsive. Really, God is an at-risk parent. When he created, he created mankind in his image, and that basically he gave humans the ability to create their own future. And he's a risk-taking God because God wasn't quite sure when he created Adam and Eve what his quote-unquote children were going to do. And so as a parent, he made a choice. I'm going to create these kids, Adam and Eve. I'm not sure what they're going to do, but I value their freedom so much that I'm just going to risk creating um, beings who might not actually obey me or follow me. So I'm taking a huge risk in creating them. And they can actually, these creations can actually thwart God's purposes. Um, and so 
Instead of emphasizing God as all-powerful, God as sovereign, God on his throne, basically they would say that God's not all-powerful, but he is omnicompetent to adapt to unexpected situations. So God is very good at adapting. He's got the power to adapt to things that may surprise him. And so he's really good at this. So if his creations make a choice that he didn't expect, he can adapt really good on the fly. He's very good. He's God's a multitasker. He can take care of things on the fly really, really good because he is so sovereign as God. He's not all powerful. He's an at-risk parent, but he sure can adapt well to the decisions of his creation. That's tenant number two. Tenant number three is this. They basically say love is the preeminent attribute of God. Now, this is in open theism, but we're seeing this more and more in traditional Southern Baptist and in, in, in Arminians. I've seen this on some blogs recently uh, for Southern Baptist blogs that are basically arguing that God's love is his preeminent attribute over all other attributes. I, I would encourage you to go listen to a former podcast where I interact with Jim Walls, who's an Arminian scholar who basically argues the same thing. I would recommend a book to you. I'm in the process of reading it right now. It's by David Wells. It's called God in the Whirlwind, How the Holy Love of God Reorients Our World. And his argument, and it's a great argument from his book, is that our evangelical culture tends to elevate either the, the, lo- the love of God or the holiness of God, and we get those two out of balance. And really, we can't elevate one attribute of God over another attribute of God because He's God, and so His love is holy and His holiness is loving, and so He brings a biblical balance to how God can show both wrath and mercy at the same time and not fall in the ditch of elevating God's love as His preeminent attribute. And so really what the open theist is going to say is that God is a vulnerable, loving Father. And the reason that He's vulnerable is because He does not coerce or he does not persuade, or he does not force his creation to love him back. He loves his creation so much that he's given them absolute freedom to do what they want, and that God's preeminent attribute is a, that of being a vulnerable, loving parent. Number four, the central component of open theist is libertarian freedom. Um, According to Clark Pennock, humans have the ability to make free choices without the coercion of nature, nurture, or God. In other words, it's this parent-at-risk model that God generally does not intervene in human affairs. And so God's a hands-off God. It's almost like deism. God wound the universe up like a clock and he stepped back and he's just allowing humans to, to do what they want to do. And so in this view, humanity bears the primary responsibility for developing the future. It's a hands-off, parent-at-risk, God is loving, so he's given humans absolute freedom, absolute libertarian freedom to, to chart their course in the future. The hu- humanity has the primary responsibility for developing the future. God may intervene when he has to, but ultimately God's more of a hands-off God. And number five is this. Open theists conceive of their viewpoint as a solution to the problem of evil and suffering. We call this theodicy. It's the theological word theodicy. How do, we, how do we come to grips with the biblical teaching of why does God allow or even ordain at times suffering and sin? And they say this, this is the answer. Arminians don't have the answer. Calvinists don't have the answer. We have the answer. So here's the answer. Since we have human libertarian freedom, and God does not know the future, and he's a parent at risk, then the possibility of great evil is totally human contrived. It's because God doesn't know the future, and God doesn't know the consequences of the future, and God doesn't know the free choices of the future. So therefore, because God doesn't know the future, God in no way can prevent evil. And God is only responsible for the potentiality of evil, but he's not responsible for the reality of evil. 
So all the evil that happens in the world is really totally human-driven. Again, I would go back and encourage you to listen to some former podcasts, especially the podcast on Are There Two Wills in God, to see that God often ordains the things that He hates to bring about the things that He loves. And we've got example after example in the Scriptures of God ordaining evil or suffering to occur in order to bring about a greater purpose. And so the open theist will often look at the Scriptures, and there's five types of Scriptures that, that will lead them to formulate their understanding of God. Because you may say, well, where in the world do they get this from the Bible? If these are such scholarly leaders and these people are reading the Bible, are they reading the same Bible that I'm reading? Because obviously uh, this is crazy. How are they coming up with these conclusions that God doesn't know the future, that God's an at-risk parent, that God is, is not in control of anything? Where are they getting this from the Bible? Well, there's five types of scriptures that lead them to formulate their understanding about God. So let's look at these five scriptures. So the first example is they point to passages that speak of the future in terms of what may happen. And so they'll take a passage, for example, like Exodus chapter 4, where Moses is going before the people to do the signs, and he's, he's arguing with God about whether they're going to believe him. And then in Exodus 4 verse 1, Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. And he goes on there and basically um, Moses says in verse 8, if they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. They look at that passage of Scripture and they say, Moses is basically questioning his duty there. If he goes and he performs these signs to the Jewish leaders and they don't believe in him, um, then, then what's going to happen, God? And so Moses says... Well, they may not believe me, or they may. Um, and so they look at passages where terms like may or may not, and basically they take that to mean, well, if that if somebody's saying they may something may not happen, then obviously the logical conclusion is, is God doesn't know what's going to happen either. God doesn't know what's going to happen either. And so that's not the issue. This passage does not mean that God didn't know how the Jewish leaders would respond. Because God told in Moses in advance, back in chapter 3, verse 18, how they were going to respond. Go back in chapter 3, verse 18. It says, And they will listen to your voice, and you and, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three journeys into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. They will listen to your voice. And, and Moses is saying, well, what if they don't? What, what if they don't? They, they may not. They may or they may not. And so they, the open theists, look at these verses that talk about may, contingencies, things that may happen, and they automatically assume that, well, that must mean that God doesn't know the future. For example, they would look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And doesn't Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane pray that this cup may be removed? Obviously, you know, Jesus is going to the cross. He's sweating drops of blood. He knows that he's about to drink to the dregs the full cup of God's wrath. And he prays, may this cup pass from me. And so actually some open theists like John Sanders would say Jesus could have avoided the cross. That cup may have been taken from him. It, if he prayed it, God may have done that. And so anytime they see a may in the Bible, they automatically make the assumption that God must not know the future or God could somehow change his mind. Other times, number two, other passages they look to are passages where God tests his people. And what they're saying is that God tests his people so that God can discover their responses. God doesn't know how they're going to respond. God doesn't know what they're going to do, so he simply tests them so he can find out how they're going to do that. The biggest example it would be when Abraham in, in, in Genesis chapter 22 is offering up Isaac on Mount Moriah. And, and 
Moses sticks out his knife to slit Isaac's throat, and then the angel of the Lord stops him, and God says in, in chapter 22, verse 12, now I know that you fear God. Now I know. I, I, I've seen your faith, and now I know that. And then they would look at that and say, okay, we take that to mean that God didn't know what Abraham was going to do. God did not know what Abraham was going to do. God saw Abraham going fully to put the knife into Isaac and and basically to obey God. And so when God saw that, he passively took in knowledge, showing him that Abraham was indeed obedient. And at that point, God learned or God discovered what Abraham was going to do. So God had a pretty good idea that Abraham was going to obey, but he did not have that future decision of Abraham. He he did not know that because it it was only going to happen in the future. Does that word know in Genesis 22, 12 mean that God has taking in passive knowledge? Or is it a statement more for Abraham's benefit if you go, especially if you go back to Hebrews chapter 6, where God confirms an oath and swears to him, it's more for Abraham's benefit that God was sovereignly going to confirm his purposes to him. It doesn't mean that God passively took in knowledge and didn't know what Abraham was going to do. And then all of a sudden God finds out and God's surprised and God wasn't sure, but now he knows that Abraham's faithful. That's not even true within the context, because if you go look at chapter 22, verse 5, there's a clue that the writer Moses puts into that narrative that gives us a clue that that even Abraham knew that he was going to come back down with his son. It says, I and the boy will go up and worship and we will come back down. So Abraham even knew that even if he killed his son, God was powerful to bring him back to life. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that that Abraham even knew that God could raise Isaac from the dead, even though he had never even seen a resurrection. So it doesn't mean that God's testing Abraham to somehow find out information to see if he's going to to, to obey. It's not that God is testing so that he can learn or discover knowledge. Okay, number three. They also look at passages where God asks non-rhetorical questions about the future. Okay? For example, <laughs> in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, you've got God asking some questions to Adam and Eve in the garden. So, Adam and Eve have sinned and verse 8 chapter 3, verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Okay, here's the point. Did God not know where they were? Where are you, Adam? I don't know where you're hiding. I didn't know that that you ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I, I'm asking these questions because I don't know. Please tell me because I don't have the knowledge of what you did. Is God asking these questions because he doesn't have knowledge? Or is it, according to Hebrew rhetorical structures in the original language, more of this idea that God is coming as the attorney in the courtroom? And he's the judge or the attorney and he's bringing up evidence and he's asking Adam to reveal his sin. It's not as if God's passively taking in knowledge that he doesn't know. He's asking these questions as a way to bring condemnation upon Adam so Adam can realize his own guilt. It's for Adam's benefit. It's for Adam to confess in the courtroom before the the bar of God's justice that he has sinned against God. It's not, God's not asking these questions because somehow he doesn't have the knowledge and he needs to find out from Adam what's going on. Number four, this is a difficult one because there's wordings, especially in the King James Version of the Bible, that that make this a little difficult. Number four, they emphasize passages in which God expresses uh, regret or even as the King James Version, repentance for his decisions. For example, in Genesis 6, 6, uh, let me read it from the ESV. Genesis 6, 6, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, 
and it grieved him to his heart. The Lord God was sorry. Unfortunately, the King James Version of the Bible makes that into the Lord repented that he had made man on the earth. And in 1 Samuel 15, 11, you hear the same thing. God was sorry that he made Saul king. A King James Version, he repented. And that is a, is a very unfortunate translation that, that God repented. Because if God repents, it makes it sound like God did something wrong that he needed to change from doing. He, he repented. Now, the issue of God being sorry. Does this mean that God did not know what his creation was going to do and that all of a sudden God had to come up with a plan with the flood to flood the earth because of the wickedness and it surprised God? Or King Saul's sin surprised God and he didn't know what was going on. Is the word grieving there meaning that God was somehow surprised and he had changed his mind? Or... Does it really mean that on an emotional level, we're dealing with the emotions of the, 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 the infinite God here, so it's sometimes hard to, to truly wrap our minds around this, or is it just expressing that God was sorrowful, that God has emotions, that God was sorrowful that he had created? It doesn't mean that God didn't know what his creation was going to do. It didn't mean that God regretted that he had done it in the sense that he needs to repent from doing it. It simply means that God, as the infinite being, and we're created in his image, so and we have emotions, so obviously God has emotions. We see that all throughout the scriptures, talking about grieving the Holy Spirit. It simply just means that God grieved. God was sorrowful, that God was expressing deep anguish over the sinful decisions of his creation. It doesn't mean that he didn't know they were going to do it. It doesn't mean that he did something wrong in creating them and he had to somehow work after the fact to to fix a problem. Obviously, God has exhaustive knowledge of all things past, present, and future. So he knew after creating Adam and Eve that they were going to fall. God knew that the the world was going to become so wicked and corrupt that he was going to destroy it with a flood. God knew that King Saul would be so wicked that God would have to reject him. It's not as if God looked and saw, man, I, I made a huge mistake here. I should have never have made Saul king because, man, he surprised me. He did some pretty crazy stuff, and now I'm going to have to go to plan B. I'm going to have to anoint David because, after all, um, Saul messed up, and I wasn't quite sure. I took a risk. I'm an at-risk parent. Um, I allowed Samuel to anoint Saul. I wasn't really sure what Saul was going to do. I kind of had a good idea, but I'm really good at adapting on the fly. But, oh, man, he made such a bad mistake that I, I really repent of what I'm doing, and now I'm going to have to go to plan B and, 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 and anoint David as king. That's probably maybe a mischaracterization of how the open theist would would view it, but really taken to its logical end, that's probably how they would view that situation. Also, open theist number five, they stress passages in which God expresses either surprise or disappointment. And we need to look at those passages of Scripture. When God expresses surprise, it doesn't mean that he's surprised in the sense that he doesn't know. Again, it's a rhetorical device used in Hebrew language and Hebrew poetry and Hebrew prophecy that really is a rhetorical way of, of enhancing God's justice and God's holiness. And it's really more for the benefit of us to see how God responds to sin. For example, especially in Jeremiah, let's look at Jeremiah uh, 731. This is in context of, of the things that the wicked nations were doing, especially Israel during that time. Jeremiah 731 says this, And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Basically, they're burning their children in the valley of Hinnon to the false god of Molech. And God is shocked by this. And he says, this didn't even enter my mind. Now, when it says it didn't even enter God's mind, does this mean God didn't know they were going to do it? Or God was shocked or God was surprised? Is that what it means that it never entered his mind? I think it's saying that that never entered God's mind in the sense that he never knew it was going to happen. I think that's a rhetorical way of God saying, listen, this is so evil. This is so ungodly, that, that it's so shocking that you would do this, that this is totally against my law. 
and God is, Jeremiah is using a rhetorical device here to, to really express God's anger and displeasure at the sins of his people. Not that God was surprised, not that God said, wow, I, I didn't think you would ever do that. I mean, think about a God in heaven who looks down and sees his Israelites sacrificing their children in the fire. And, and basically an open theist would say, wow, God didn't see that coming. That was a shocker to God. That, that didn't enter God's mind. He, he never knew that was going to happen. No, that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that God didn't know it was going to happen. It means that God is, is expressing shock. And oftentimes there are the, the anthropomorphisms in the scriptures. And anthropomorphism basically just means that we attribute human-like characteristics to an infinite God because we can't fully understand the infinite, holy God, the eternal God. And so sometimes the writers of scriptures resort to what we call anthropomorphisms to put um, human characteristics to God down on a level that we can understand them. And this may be a rhetorical or a a literary device used in the scriptures to to show really that God is shocked. God is grieved by the sins of his people. Not that this took God by surprise. Not that God was passively taking in knowledge that he didn't know. That's not what's going on. And so open theists really have a, I would say not just a sub-biblical, but a heretical view of God. Now, there are some scriptures that affirm the divine sovereignty of God, and especially, I mean, we could go all over the place, but especially in the book of of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah chapter 40 through 48 really give us some of the best examples in the scriptures of God's exhaustive sovereignty over all things. Isaiah 42, 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Before they spring forth. In other words, before things happen, God's going to tell us of them. And why does God tell us of things that haven't happened yet? Because God has divine, exhaustive foreknowledge of all things, including the free decisions of His creation. God is sovereign. He knows the former things that have come to pass, and He knows the future things that are going to happen. And as a matter of fact, He doesn't just know those. He doesn't just passively take in the knowledge of those things. He actually ordains and decrees them in the infinite counsel of His will. Listen to Isaiah chapter 43, verses 11 through 13. I... I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed where there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver you from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Who can turn it back? Isaiah 44, verses 24 and following. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer who formed you from their womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up the ruins, who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purposes, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. It's interesting here. God is making a future prediction of what he's going to do with King Cyrus. If you know from Israelite history, God ordains Cyrus, the king of Persia, to allow the Israelites to come back from captivity and to reestablish in Israel, in Jerusalem. And that only happens because God ordained that Cyrus would do that. An open theist would say, well, God wasn't really sure. He wasn't sure if Cyrus would do that or Cyrus wouldn't. Would the Israelites come back? Would that king allow them to come back? Would they ever repopulate after Babylonian captivity? Who knows? God doesn't know. But the scriptures here and all throughout the Bible says that God ordains kings. God set up Cyrus. God ordained that Cyrus would bring them back. There's more and more scriptures we can look at. Um, especially the, the one that, that's probably the, the most important, I think, that really sums up this whole idea of God's exhaustive foreknowledge and divine sovereignty over all things is Isaiah chapter 46. And verses 8 through 11 says this, 
Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east and the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoke it, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. I mean, that's just the one scripture you had in the Bible that settles it for me. My counsel shall stand. God says, I declare to you the end from the beginning. So God declares the end. God knows how it's going to end. God ordains how it's going to end. Ancient times, things not yet done. Things in the future that have not happened yet, God declares them to us. Why can God declare it? Not because he doesn't know or that he's passively taking in knowledge. No, he says, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God will bring it to pass. Why will God bring it to pass? Because it is part of his purpose. It's part of the eternal counsel of his decree. God didn't just look down to the corridors of time and wonder what was going to happen and respond as an at-risk parent on the fly and decide how he was going to respond. No, God actually determined, God decreed, God decided before the foundation of the earth all that comes to pass. He's purposed it. He will do it. No plan or purpose of his can be forded according to Job. There's a whole bunch of other scriptures we can we can go to to look at this and other podcasts we've we've dealt with that. So open theism is a heretical view of God that is really Arminianism taken to its extreme viewpoint. If God looks down through the corridors of time and he foresees what humans are going to do, And based upon what God foresees, he then elects those to salvation. Based upon conditional election, he sees the conditions being met of repentance and faith by a sinner. And once God foresees that, down down the quarters of time, he, he ratifies the decision made by a sinner. And thus he elects them based upon what he foresees. That's the foreknowledge, the conditional view of election of Arminianism. But taken to an extreme, it would say God looks down the corridors of time and God doesn't see what free creatures are going to choose because those choices haven't happened yet. And God can't decree or God can't know what hasn't happened yet. And so in the present, he knows what's going on. In the past, he knows what's going on, but the future, he does not. And so when things happen, he's an at-risk parent that's making decisions on the fly to try to respond or try to work things out according to his will because he values ultimate libertarian freedom and he wants his humanity to have ultimate freedom to chart the course of history. Now, where you might encounter open theism on a popular level, Most of you are probably not going to read these scholarly articles or journals or books about open theism, but it has shown up in some popular ways. Now, John Eldridge. I'm not a big fan of John Eldridge. Wild at heart in some of his other books. Um, Basically, he denies he's an open theist. This was a while back. I'm not sure where he stands now. But time and time again, if you read his books... Basically, especially from Wild at Heart and and Sacred Romance, um, basically he says this, quote, God is a person who takes immense risks. God takes risks. What does that mean, that God takes risks? Is he an at-risk parent when he created Adam and Eve? He he took a huge risk. Does that mean that that God takes risks because he's not really sure how we're going to respond. He's not really sure what we're going to do. That's kind of cryptic language. When, when you come across that, especially in Wild at Heart that was really popular about 15 years ago and, and it was really big in men's movements and, and yeah, I want to be this Wild at Heart man out there. And What does it mean that God takes a risk? Listen to another thing he says, quote, it's not the nature of God to limit his risks and cover his bases. It's not the nature of God to limit his risk and cover his basis. God doesn't cover his basis. Well, what does that mean? God doesn't cover his basis. God just allows things to happen. Another quote. As with every relationship, there are a certain amount of unpredictability. God's willingness to risk is just astounding. There is definitely something wild in the heart of God. 
God's willingness to risk. Risk what? What is God risking? What is God putting on the line? What is, what is, what's so attractive that God is, is risking something? Why, why is that astounding? Why does that draw you to the heart of God? I would ex- argue just the exo- exact opposite. I'm not drawn to a heart of a God who risks. Because if a God risks, that means that somehow he doesn't know. That means somehow he's not in control. That means somehow in the end, he may or may not win. And that means that he's given us ultimate freedom and we know what happens when humans are in charge. I actually believe the exact opposite. I want to worship a God who's sovereign. I want to worship a God who's on his throne. I want to worship a God who has the end from the beginning determined. I want to worship a God who determines all things according to the counsel of his will. I want to worship a God who's going to fulfill his purpose and no plan or purpose of his can be thwarted. I want a God who wins in the end. I don't want an at-risk parent. I don't want a God who takes risks. I don't want a God who doesn't know the future. I don't want that kind of God. Because really, in the end, that's a God that's made in my image. I'm an at-risk parent. I've got an 18-year-old that's about ready to go off to college. He's a senior. And as I send him off to college next year, I'm taking a risk. I'm, I'm hoping that we raised him godly in the Lord, my wife and I. But when he goes off to college, he, he's on his own. And, and so we're taking a risk that we've done everything in our power to raise him in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But ultimately, um, we're, we're sending him off to college. We're, we're taking a risk. He's moving out of the house. I'm an at-risk parent. But God is not an at-risk parent. God is sovereign. I'm not sovereign. God is in control. I'm not in control. And that's why I can trust God when I send my son out that God's purposes for his life and God's purposes for our family will be accomplished even through the sinful choices that we make or that he makes, that God will fulfill his purpose. And so the one ditch that we see on the Arminian side is the ditch of open theism which is a heresy. Now, in the time that we have left, let's talk about the ditch of hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism. Five-point Calvinism is not hyper-Calvinism. Some would say it's hyper-Calvinism. Some would say it's high-Calvinism. Some would say it's an extreme view of Calvinism. It a lot of depends on your perspective. But let me give you a definition of hyper-Calvinism. Now, you can go back in history, especially the arguments related to uh, John Gill back in the, the 16 and 1700s. You can look at how hyper-Calvinism historically came about in the British church, um, especially among primitive Baptists. Um, there, there's a lot of historical issues related to hyper-Calvinism, but just for a popular level on this podcast, um, I want to draw your attention to um, an article, a blog post that was written by Phil Johnson of grace to you. He's, he's John MacArthur's right-hand man, and you can go to his um, Spurgeon.org or his Pyromaniacs blog um, and find this, but, but I think it's very helpful. He's kind of distilled it down to a way that a popular, uh, on a popular level that we can, we can understand it. And so um, hyper-Calvinism really is, is um, ultra-Calvinism in the sense it's taken, it's taken some things to an extreme that the scripture doesn't teach. And so let me give you the five tenets or the five points of hyper-Calvinism, okay? Not the five points of Calvinism, the five points of hyper-Calvinism. Here's here's point number one. Hyper-Calvinism denies that the gospel call applies to all who hear. And we'll explain that in just a moment. Number two, it denies that faith is the duty of every sinner. Number three, it denies that the gospel makes any offer of Christ, salvation, or mercy to the non-elect. Number four, it denies that there's such a thing as common grace. And number five, it denies that God has any sort of love for the non-elect. Here's the issue with hyper-Calvinism, just to distill it down. Hyper-Calvinism basically in a nutshell says this. God has sovereignly regenerated his elect and he's done that sovereignly and there's no need for you to preach the gospel to lost people 
because it's a useless endeavor. Because if God wants to save his elect, he will save his elect. And therefore, you do not actually need to believe in Jesus or call upon his name because you've already been regenerated. What you need to do is then find evidence or um, proof that you are actually regenerate. And so you need to find your assurance in the fact that you are already one, one among one of the elect. And so we don't pray for lost people. We don't evangelize lost people. Um, if we preach, we look for evidences of regeneration and we only preach to those. And so it's this extreme view. And in a nutshell, I would basically say this. You know a hyper-Calvinist is a hyper-Calvinist when he says, listen, we don't need to pray for lost people because God's going to save them anyway. We don't need to do evangelism because God's going to save them anyway. We don't need to do missions or go to unreached people groups because God's going to save them anyway. And so really, we, we want to just um, understand that any type of evangelism or praying or means used to bring about the salvation of God's elect, we'll, we'll just reject those. So what hyper-Calvinism does is it, it takes an extreme view of, of the, it takes the means out, if you will. So, so let's talk about some truth here for a moment. Does God elect sinners to be saved before the foundation of the world? Yes. Does God have a fixed number of his elect sheep that he has chosen before the foundation of the world? Yes. Do we need to have repentance and faith in order to come to Christ. Yes, no one is saved without repenting and believing. We are not saved by our election. We are elect unto salvation, but we are not actually saved until we personally repent and believe. Okay, so there's a responsibility to repent and believe in Jesus. Okay, why does a center, sinner repent and believe in Jesus? Well, the reason they repent and believe is because Number one, God has chosen them before the foundation of the earth, but God has also, also effectually called them through the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit and brought regeneration into their heart, granting them the gifts of repentance and faith so that they freely and willingly come to faith in Christ. Okay, how does that happen? Well, it's, it happens through the preaching of the gospel. It happens through the teaching and the proclaiming of the gospel. It also happens through praying for lost people. So sinners who are elect before the foundation of the world do infallibly come to Christ in faith. Why do they come to faith in Christ? They come to faith in Christ because God has regenerated them. But what's the means that God uses to bring about the elect salvation? The means he uses are evangelism, preaching, teaching, sharing, praying, going. So hyper-Calvinism takes out the means. They take out the evangelism. They take out the praying. They take out the going. They take out the sharing. They take those things out and just assume that God's got his elect. He's going to regenerate them. But there's no means to, to bring that about. And also, they deny that repentance and faith is necessary for salvation. And so we can just go look at some, some passages of Scripture that teach these types of things. Um, we, we can go to Romans chapter 10, for example. It's probably the most, most famous passage of Scripture on this. Romans chapter 10, where Paul is arguing about the missionary mandate. And interestingly, it's right in, in the midst of his argument about divine election. But notice what he says in verse 14. Romans chapter... Actually, let's, let's start back. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who, puts, who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a guaranteed promise from Scripture. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So what does it look like to call upon the name of the Lord? Well, he defines that for us in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what does it mean to call upon the Lord? Well, it means that you believe, you confess, you repent, you come to that point where you acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, you acknowledge your sin, you acknowledge that you need Jesus as Savior, you confess Him as Lord, you believe in His death, burial, and resurrection, you personally put all of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You call upon Him. And the promise from Scripture is whoever does that will be 
saved. Okay, which brings up a question that Paul answers. Okay, how is this going to happen? How does this happen? What's the means by which a person can actually call upon the Lord to be saved? And Paul answers that in the following verses. Verse 14, how are they to call on him whom they've not believed? Great question. If, if, if the way to get saved is to call upon Jesus, how are they even going to call upon Jesus if they've not believed in Jesus? They, they've got to believe. They've got to have faith to, to be able to call out to him. So how are they going to get saved if they don't believe? And then Paul goes on to say, how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? If they've never heard of Jesus... If they've never heard the name of Jesus, if they've never heard the gospel, then how are they going to have the, 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 the information, the gospel preached them to, to have enough information to know that they're a sinner, to know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to actually believe and call and be saved if they've never heard? And Paul goes on to say, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How are they to hear without someone preaching? So here's the means. And then Paul says, you got to be sent to preach. So here's the issue related to the gospel. You got to have someone sent And that person sent has got to preach the gospel. They've got to preach it in such a way that the people can hear the gospel, in such a way that they can hear it in order to believe, in such a way that they can believe it in order to call upon the name of the Lord, in such a way that they can be saved. That's the logic of Paul's argument. And so if you take a means out of that, if you take one of those steps out of it, you've become a hyper-Calvinist. Because the step that's taken out is preach. How can they hear unless someone preaches? A hyper-Calvinist would say, you know, God basically saves who he's going to save. You, you don't need to call upon the name of the Lord. It's going to happen no matter what. And so they've taken Romans chapter 10 and totally sliced that out of the Bible. You've got to call upon Jesus. You've got to have personal faith in Christ. How does that happen? You've got to know the gospel. How does that happen? Somebody tells you, somebody preaches, somebody shares you, somebody has to be sent to you. And so when we look at the scriptures, we realize that we are called to fulfill the Great Commission, obey the Great Commission, to go make disciples, to go to unreached people groups, to go to preach the gospel. And when we preach the gospel to all creation, God in his grace calls out effectually his elect. The gospel call goes to all people. We've got scriptures all over the place, especially in the Great Commission, that say, preach the gospel to all creation. Go into all creation. Starting in Jerusalem, preach repentance and forgiveness of sins to all creation. Make disciples of all the nations. Go, go, sent, go be sent to all the nations. We can't be discriminate in who we preach the gospel to. Nowhere in the Bible are we told to go target the elect and preach only to them. We are told to preach the gospel to all creation. And once the preaching comes, once the teaching comes, once the proclamation comes, then God effectually calls out his elect through the preaching of the word, the means, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, enabling them through regeneration to then call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We have an example of this in the book of Acts when Paul is in Corinth. Paul is discouraged uh, he's in Corinth, and he has uh, had a hard time really coming to grips with what God is doing there. And so he has a vision at night as he's spent some time there. And it's in, and it's in Acts chapter 18. And he's all by himself. Other people have left. And um, pick up in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. What's Jesus saying to Paul in that vision? Paul's discouraged. Paul wants to give up. Jesus comes to him and says, Don't give up. Don't fear. I'm with you. He says, don't be silent. Keep on speaking. Keep on teaching the word of God. Well, why would Paul do that? 
Because Jesus says to Paul, I have many in this city. In other words, Jesus says, I have sheep. I have a flock. I have my elect scattered throughout Corinth, Paul. They have not come to faith in Christ yet. They are my elect. The Father has given them to me before the foundation of the world. They are chosen. They are mine. But the means by which they come out of darkness and delight is through your teaching, Paul, through your preaching. So don't be silent. Keep teaching. Keep preaching. Because, Paul, you're the means I'm using to call my elect. I have many in that city. So keep preaching. Keep teaching. Keep sharing the gospel because the more you share the gospel, the more you keep teaching. You do this for another year and a half doing that. I will call out my elect. I will bring my elect to faith through your teaching, your preaching, your investing, your loving, your ministry, Paul. So don't be silent. Now, hyper-Calvinists would say, Paul, don't worry about it. You're there in Corinth. God's going to save who he's going to save. So just be silent. Just go look for the elect. Don't preach. Don't teach. Don't be discouraged. God wants to save them, God's going to save them. But no, what we see here is means. The means by which God calls his elect is the preaching and teaching of the gospel in such a way that people can hear the gospel so that they can believe the gospel so that they can call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And hyper-Calvinism basically denies those means that God uses. So you have two ditches. You've got the Calvinism ditch that takes you to hyper-Calvinism that basically says, listen, if God wants them to be saved, he's going to save them. Don't need to evangelize. You don't need to do anything. You've got the other ditch on the Arminian side that says, God doesn't know the future. God's bound by this view of being an at-risk parent. And so when it comes to full circle, when you look at both of these views, what's the one thing in common in both of these views? The one thing in common between open theism and hyper-Calvinism is really you're off the hook to do anything in responsibility to the gospel. In open theism, don't share the gospel because God really can't work it out anyway. People have ultimate freedom. It's going to happen. What's ever going to happen? In hyper-Calvinism, you don't need to share the gospel because God's going to save them. It doesn't matter. And both those ditches are extremely damning because how is the only way a person gets saved? It's not because God's an at-risk parent and doesn't know the future, and it's not because God's going to save them anyway. The way a person gets saved is by hearing the gospel and then repenting of their sin and placing their faith in Christ. And so both these ditches lead us away from a robust view of evangelism. Both these views lead us away from praying and trusting in God to do only the work that God can do because He's sovereign. Both of these views really take away um, one puts too much responsibility on man and one takes away all the responsibility of man. And so you see in the scriptures this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And sometimes we can't quite explain it, but we do know that if there's one thing we're going to camp out on, that is this. All people everywhere are sinners. All people everywhere need the gospel. And so every single person on planet earth is a candidate for the gospel. That doesn't mean everybody's going to get saved. It doesn't mean everybody's elect into salvation, but it means that we as obedient Christians don't know the identity of the elect. And so what we do is we call out to the Lord for his help in bringing about the gospel to the nations. So we need to be faithful to sharing the gospel, leaving the results up to God, but taking the gospel to the nations, taking the gospel to unreached people groups, sharing the gospel in such a way that all people everywhere can have an opportunity to hear, repent, and believe. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm thankful that you took time to listen to this podcast. If you have any questions, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at sean at ebc-online.org. You can go to my website, seancole.net, and you can find my contact information there. Uh, you can Twitter me or tweet me on at sdcole is my Twitter feed. You can find me on Facebook. Um, you can go to iTunes and uh, rate this podcast. It helps us to get more exposure. If you appreciate this podcast, share this podcast with your friends. If you find it beneficial, um, I really appreciate that. So I'd love to answer your questions. Maybe we can a answer some of your questions on the podcast in the future where we can deal with it in more detail. Um, so thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I hope you have a great day. <laughs>